independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-supported podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. Being a show mostly reliant on listener support, we are calling in for your direct contribution starting at just $2 to help us reach our Patreon goals so that we can keep the show going. So if you're learning from us and value these conversations, you can join our community at greendreamer.com support. And also, we just relaunched our weekly newsletter. So if you want our episodes recommended resources and juicy takeaways sent to you, as well as other random things that I might recommend, you can sign up at greendreamer.com. And now on to today's episode, where we're speaking with Pete Davis. The fallacy of the self-help book is that you are alone with complete agency to transform yourself to whatever you want to be. That's what all these self-help books say. But, you know, one of the messages I tried to acknowledge in this book is that agency is affected by structure and bounded by structure and the structure of the world out there, the structure of education, the structure of the economy, the structure of culture affects our choices. Pete is a writer and civic advocate from Falls Church, Virginia, and he's the co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network and Getaway. His Harvard Law School graduation speech, A Counterculture of Commitment, has been viewed more than 30 million times, and today we're exploring the topics he covers in his accompanying book called Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. We begin here with Pete sharing the beginnings of his interest in the idea of commitment. I have a few in my own life, you know, a few things in my own life that have led to this, which is mostly that I've had the blessing of running into a bunch of long haul heroes in my life who are the heroes of my book dedicated because they're the people that commit to things and work at them for a long time. My dad was an indigenous rights activist and he worked on that cause for half a century. And in college, I ran into people who were long haul heroes working on different causes from consumer protection to community reengagement to deepening democracy. And those all led me to be very interested in this idea of committing to things and working at them for a long time. But the place where this came from is that my experience wasn't that unique. It was that it was my experience growing up was very similar to a bunch of people around me. You know, the the jumping off point for this message is that we're living in dark times. You know, there's a feeling that community is in decline. There's major political problems. There's major climate issues. There's a sense that 
our hopes of things that have burbled up as hopes over the last 30 years have turned out to not be as hopeful as we thought, you know, like the internet. And there's a sense that, you know, we're losing faith in institutions as they're being corrupted. And part of my message with the speech and my message with this book is it's guidance on what do we do in dark times? How do we respond? Because the guidance that we're getting from school is basically the message is to keep your options open. It doesn't matter what's going on out there. What you need to do is take care of your future self by making sure you don't close any doors and you maximize optionality. And then a lot of other message we're getting is wellness messaging. You know, it might be bad out there, but at least get private and take care of yourself. But this is not enough. Keeping your options open doesn't address those problems out in the world, and it doesn't lead to the peace and impact and joy that we're seeking out personally. And so I have gave this speech and wrote this book as an alternative message of what to do in these dark times, which is the message of digging into something, getting committed, dedicating yourself over the long haul, which I argue is the thing that addresses all those things that are making our times dark, while also providing a sense of peace, a sense of impact, a sense of joy to ourselves personally. Mm, Thank you for sharing that. And besides a lot of, I guess, educators and leaders telling young people to keep their options open, what are some other signs you've seen of what you call infinite browsing mode? And how do we know that we're trending towards this direction of a lack of commitment? Yeah, you can take it on a cultural level or on an individual level. So let's start practically on an individual level. Browsing itself is not the enemy. You know, in the book I talk about the enemy is infinite browsing. And so we first have to come to terms with the good parts of browsing to understand where it starts curdling into the bad parts. So the good parts is, you know, browsing allows us to be flexible. It allows things to be chill. You know, you don't want the person on the first date talking about baby names. Browsing also very significantly helps us find our authentic self, you know, by shedding inherited involuntary commitments and exploring and going on adventures and looking around. We're able to discover who our true self is. We're able to find out what resonates with us, what inspires us. And finally, browsing is very fun. It leads to a lot of novel experiences. You know, nothing more profound to say about that. But here's the problem. If you browse forever, if you switch from browsing to infinite browsing, each of those pleasures of browsing start getting haunted by pains. So the pleasure of flexibility eventually curdles into choice paralysis. You know, the sense that I have so many options, I can't choose any option because I'm haunted by all the options I didn't choose. This is what the psychologist Barry Schwartz calls the paradox of choice. You know, we want some choice, but if you're given infinite choice, you eventually are stuck. This sense of finding our authentic self, you know, if you search forever for like the perfect things that fit your authentic self, you eventually become spiritually isolated because all relationships involve subsuming ourselves at least a bit in something larger than ourselves that doesn't fit us perfectly. And so this isolation can come from browsing. And finally, all that fun of novelty, as anyone who's kind of browsed through their 100th TikTok video knows, eventually starts becoming shallow boredom. If you do hot new thing after hot new thing after hot new thing, you fry the the wires in your brain of novelty and eventually start pining for something deeper, something 
more special than just kind of the latest hot new thing. And so when these pleasures start curdling into these pains and the pains become bigger than the pleasures, then start thinking about, you know, I'm stuck in infinite browsing mode here and I got to start committing to something. Mm. So one of the concerns may be that this culture of restlessness can cause stress and tension for people and ultimately a lack of direction and purpose. So I guess I would ask, how do we know that it's not the other way around, that our increasing stress and anxiety from our worsening economic disparity and injustices are leading to restlessness and a fear of committing? Because I can see how if people feel insecure without, without the ability to meet their basic needs, they can have a hard time fully dedicating themselves to something when they really only have the capacity to dedicate themselves to their own immediate survival. And what that looks like may constantly shift depending on the material conditions and societal barriers that they're dealing with. So what would you say to that? Totally, totally, totally. Amen. I call it, you know, it's the great fallacy of the self-help book. The fallacy of the self-help book is that you are alone with complete agency to transform yourself to whatever you want to be. That's what all these self-help books say. But, you know, one of the messages I tried to acknowledge in this book is that agency is affected by structure and bounded by structure. And the structure of the world out there, the structure of education, the structure of the economy, the structure of culture affects our choices. And so, Totally, totally, totally. The story of infinite browsing mode is is totally affected by the structure of our economy. And it is really hard to, you know, commit to particularly a place if you're housing insecure, or it's hard to commit to a career if you don't have a strong labor union or, or labor protections and you're at the whim of an employer or downsizing by a large headquarters of the corporation, you know, halfway around the world affecting how what's happening in your life. Mm. But the one thing I'll balance that with is that I think it's a little, I think it's wrongheaded and misguided to think that browsing is a privileged predicament. Because I don't just talk about browsing careers or browsing places, which are especially affected by economics. I also talk about browsing people, browsing ideas, browsing institutions, browsing belief systems, browsing artisanal crafts, and most importantly, browsing our intimate relationships of family and friends and love. and people who are of all walks of life are struggling with that. They're struggling with that because of technology. They're struggling with that because institutions have less of a, we're less embedded in kind of institutions larger than ourselves. Thus, you know, we have to find meaning ourselves. And so the problem of having a hundred open doors in terms of your career might be a privileged predicament, but the problems of having hundreds of open doors generally I, I think is not. And it would be wrong to assume that that's something that all different types of people are grappling with. This sort of answers my next question for you, because I wanted to clarify the different types of dedication that you speak to, because I wonder if people could be very committed in certain parts of their lives, for example, maybe to their partners, their families, or deeper values, while keeping their options open for maybe work and the more tangible things like consumer choices, because they haven't necessarily found what in practice can bring them deep fulfillment and alignment with the values that they've committed themselves to. Yeah. So there are a bunch of different types of commitments. And in the book and in the speech, I'm focused on a specific category of commitments. Some people have asked me, is this about commitment to 
your favorite beer brand or is this about commitment to a gym routine or is this about commitment to like rising and grinding every morning like some self-help books challenge you to do and my answer is kind of unequivocal it's no it's not about that at all what i speak in the speech and write about in the book dedicated is commitments to particular things outside of yourself particular things that have you can have relationships with particular things that can give you purpose and community and depth particular things that often involve other people so i talk about six types of particular things and the type what you embody when you are committed to them so let me walk through each of them quickly because i know six is a lot but <laughs> one is commitment to causes which i call the work of citizens that's people who want to commit to pushing the world in a direction Another is commitment to places. That's the work of patriots, people who love a place and the people that inhabit that place. There's commitment to projects, which is the work of builders turning ideas into reality. There's commitment to maintenance, projects that already exist, institutions that already exist that you want to inherit, steward, and pass on maintenance. That's the work of stewards. Commitment to craft, which is the work of artisans. And it's not just private commitment to craft, but entering into craft communities, the community of plumbers, the community of lawyers, the community of guitar players, the practice, the craft practice. And finally, there's the commitment, the most important type of commitment, commitment to specific particular people. And that's the work of companions. And I love the word companion because it it's just a beautiful word. It means pan meaning bread, comb meaning with. So it's to be a companion is someone who breaks bread with another. It's just to be present with another in their life, which is the best we can hope for with another person. We can't fix anyone. We can't control anyone. We can't change anyone. But we can be present with other people as companions. And that's the work of commitment to people. So these are the commitments I'm talking about. And the experience of infinite browsing mode, though I do believe commitments beget commitments and committed people work a muscle that allow them to commit easily or to other things. They're not monolithic. You know, some people might have to sacrifice commitment in some realms for the sake of commitment to others. Mm. So you're really talking about a deeper sense of commitment and not, you know, for example, the market choices that we're we're faced with on a day-to-day basis. And I also wanted to explore, so you mentioned the six different types of commitment. I'm interested to hear if you've explored the different reasons that have led to this cultural shift and whether there might be different reasons for the different types of lack of commitments that you shared. So again, this isn't what you talk about, but if we're talking about things like movie choices or cereal options or clothing options in the marketplace, that to me feels like largely the result of consumer capitalism that has created so much choice, or at least the illusion of choice by way of differences in marketing and packaging and so forth. But something like a lack of commitment to jobs could be from a lack of job satisfaction and deeper meaning. And there's a study from, I think, 2019 that showed more than half of U.S. workers are unhappy in their jobs. And I wouldn't be surprised if the trends globally were similar as well. So yeah, I just I'm curious to see if you've gotten to pinpoint and break down the different reasons that have led people to becoming more non-committal in these different deeper parts of their lives that you shared. In the in the book, I don't get too much into it cuz you know, I'm not a historian and I didn't want to have what they call a potted history of this is some grand statement on how culture has changed without kind of backing it up. But I do have some hints that I've picked up looking into this theme. So first off, let's just start with people 
at all times in human history have browsed and grappled with browsing and committing. You can find letters from the 1700s or novels from the 1700s about I'm grappling with what career I should take or what person I should marry, things like that. So it's always been around. But there are some things that I think are contributing to our browsing. So one, obviously, is technology, and specifically a technology based on maximizing the amount of choices and opportunities you have. So one is the increase of transportation technology has like has let us see all these different ways of being, different places you could commit to, cause you could take on, people you could be with, crafts you could master. And then communication technology is kind of the inverse of travel. Travel lets you go everywhere to see things. Communication lets all those things come to you with the internet being kind of the omega point of this, where you can just make real that Cat Stevens lyric, there are a million ways to be, and there is a message board out there on each of those million ways that will teach you those million ways you could be. But it's not just technology. I think it's also just a loosening of an institutional grip over the individual. You know, 200 years ago, there would be a lot of things in culture many of them, probably the vast majority of them, totally unjust, that would choose the constellation of meaning for your life for you. They would kind of orient the meaning of your life externally to you. You know, They would tell you, this is the role you should take on. This is the people you should date. These are the things you should believe. These are the crafts you should take on. These are the virtues you should fight for. This is the place you should be. And so many of the liberatory movements for good, you know, their justice movements over the last 200 years have loosened the grip of those institutions. And this is a very good thing. But a real world consequence of them is that the constellation of meanings have been broken up. The grip of the institutions have loosened and it falls on us as the individual to figure out what option we should take, what door we should choose off the hallway. We've unlocked ourselves from so many locked rooms, ran out into the hallway of 100 options, and now there's not a lot of guidance on where to go. So I think that contributes to it. And finally, you know, I talk about in the book three different areas where a culture of open options range uh, reign in kind of our institutional landscape. So one is in the economy where a culture of money has overtaken a culture of particular things, the walls that have prevented money logic from invading different spheres have come down. And now money, the logic of money and markets has invaded religion and sex and romance and honor and politics and the environment and war, you know, all these things where there used to be walls up to prevent money logic from reaching them. In our moral culture, a kind of culture of indifference, you do you, I do me, let's not bother each other, has overtaken kind of a culture of honor where we have communities that have moral values and honor people who live up to them and chastise people who don't for good and for ill, but that's something that's hurting commitment. And finally, in our education system, we've switched from We've seen an increase in education for advancement, education that helps you keep your options open as an individual, and a decline in education for attachment, education that connects you to something bigger than yourself, education that instills reverence and duty to causes and crafts and places and people and ideas outside yourself that make you feel responsible for something bigger than yourself. There's been a decline in that. So I think all of this together you know, I'm not certain, I'm not a historian, I'm not going to cherry pick data for this, but those are some uh, kind of vague hints at what's contributing to our endemic browsing. 
Mm, yeah, and I'm sure it is multifaceted and there are a lot of different factors that contribute to this. So I appreciate you breaking down your impressions of what it might be. And you do acknowledge, of course, that part of the increase in choice is a genuine reflection of people having more freedom and not being forced into involuntary commitments. And that struggle is, of course, ongoing because too many are still not liberated from oppressive systems. But I guess the question I have is, isn't the goal of collective liberation to free people to choice, to free people from the carceral logic of identity that might box people in, to free people so that they can feel accepted for their constantly evolving and emerging and ever-transforming selves, whatever shape that takes on over time. So I, I understand the need for people in the world as we know it today to commit, especially to causes towards collective liberation, for example, and um, towards addressing the climate crisis and social injustice. But in an ideal world, maybe once we've reached that point and can finally just be without striving, what is the reason that compels you to believe that it's not enough just to be free, that there must be a step after it, which is free for something? When we're saying we're liberating people, the question of the definition of what liberation is, is a hotly contested political question through the centuries. So if you say that that's the liberation of infinite choice, that is one version of what freedom is. Freedom is you have all the choices you want in the world. There are alternate conceptions of what freedom is. My conception that I'm partisan to is freedom is participation in power. It's not just liberation from external power. And participation in power in a democracy is going to involve all these messy things, even in a world where there's a lot less oppression, you know, it's still going to involve working together with neighbors to figure out conceptions of the good, working together on shared public projects. There are things built into the, the human body, the fact that it needs to be cared for, the fact that people get sick and they need to be cared for, the fact that people get old and they need to be cared for, the fact that people are young and they need to be cared for, that requires that the fact that people are lonely and they need friends, you know, all these care itself requires something more than us just kind of all individually tending to ourselves. We need each other. And if we need each other, we need to work things out together. And if we need to work things out together, we need to be committed to each other. We need to be committed to places and people. And there's kind of always a, a churn inside of us. You know, I'm a believer that this is a line from my favorite philosopher, Roberto Unger, who says there is no social context out there that fully captures who we are as humans. There's no perfect engineered utopia out there because there's something about the human spirit that keeps thinking up new ideas, that keeps thinking up new ways of being. And so that consistent churn of democracy means there's never a time where we can kind of fully kind of just live in our own individualized, perfectly stasis systems without needing each other. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the message here. You know, I, I talk about it. This is kind of in the clouds, what I've been talking about for the last minute, but really concretely, one way we can talk about it is really simply one way we can talk about it is we need liberation, but we also need dedication and implicit in liberation is dedication. So you can say, oh, you know, my goal is I want to be perfectly free and not be responsible to anyone else. But anytime you're telling someone, join us in this project of racial justice, join us in this project of deepening democracy, join us in this project of fighting climate change, you're asking someone to voluntarily take on something bigger than themselves. You're asking them to use their freedom to dedicate themselves. 
And so Michael Sandel, the philosopher, writes about this. If we all just want to be kind of liberated individuals, the world would fall apart. It would eventually invade our liberated individualism. The preservation of our liberated individualism requires some communal spirit to preserve it. And that requires a capacity and a muscle among the citizenry to be dedicated to something. And so I don't think there is a stasis of full kind of liberated individualism. There needs to be that spark of civic spirit to keep things going, to to tend to the world, to tend to caring for people, to tend to fighting the next oppressor that wants to take over, to tend to coming up with new ideas and trying new things out, to tend to all public projects. So I think what you just clarified is sort of the difference between what a lot of people conceptualize as individual freedom versus collective liberation. And collective liberation inherently requires dedication, especially to the greater context of our communities and social relationships, because nobody exists in isolation. And the other thing that I think I'm hearing is that when you talk about commitment, it's not it's not at all a roadblock to personal transformation or growth. So it's not something that is meant to box people in to prevent people from change. Can you sort of clarify? Yeah, no, I, I would say I'll say this strongly. I'll say the opposite. Not committing is a complete roadblock to personal liberation and growth. It is the path to personal liberation and growth. You talk to people who are committed to things, you talk to elders who who, you know, are on the other side of a long haul. And they'll tell you what comes with it. They'll tell you, I have a deep sense of purpose. I have deep meaning in my life. I know the path forward. They have a deep sense of mastery and depth. They feel powerful. They feel they can change the world. They feel that they have an area of the world they really understand and can do things with. And they have a sense of community. They're they're filled with friends and comrades and allies. So many people our age, including myself, you know, I'm not above this. I'm not a ma- I'm not a long haul hero. I'm just a fan of them. What are the things we're struggling with? We're struggling with isolation. We want community. We're struggling with listlessness. We want purpose. We're struggling with impotence and a sense that we're not kind of strong and capable. We want depth and mastery. This is what commitment gives us. By sticking with something, it rewires your sense of meaning and gives you a sense of purpose. By sticking with something, you meet all the other people that are involved with sticking with it too, and you learn to you know, love them. They learn to love you. You become part of something. You have belonging. And by sticking with something, you learn all the nooks and crannies of it. You develop experiential mastery, and the whole world becomes alive with profound magic and meaning, which is what happens when you have a mastery of something. You know, My sister was just talking to me about how she saw a a video online that taught about the spray paint colors on the roads that explain what's underneath the roads, like gas lines or internet lines or water lines. And she saw that video and now she can walk through the road and now has all this extra sense of meaning while walking in the road because she knows the different colors and what they mean. This is what mastery from commitment gives us. You know, if you know all the nooks and crannies of baseball, when you watch a baseball game, the whole thing is alive with meaning. When you know all the nooks and crannies of some canon of some field or the depth of the history and future and current debates of some cause or all the different corner stores and flora and fauna of some place, the whole world becomes more alive. And this is what we're missing out on when we don't become rooted to something. 
What I found really interesting was when you talked about the relationship between commitment to some sort of ideology and commitment to maybe a social group or a community that may be practicing the ideology and how this all ties to extremism. Yeah, some people are worried, you know, talking about commitment is like talking about an abstract tool. Right. You know, are hammers good? It's like I wrote a book and gave a speech on like hammers. They're very <laughs> powerful. You know, and then someone asks a question like, oh, wow, that's cool. Thanks for teaching me about hammers. I was able to build a house. And then someone else asks a question. It's like, can't you use a hammer to kill someone? That's what commitment is. It's like, yes, commitment's very good. We're very glad we have it. But you can also be committed to, you know, the Nazis or something, something awful, you know, fill in, fill in the blank, awful things. So yes, it's, it's an abstract thing that can be used for ill. But one of the points I tried to make and that I believe in is that when commitment, a lot of times when you see like the extremism, you know, bad extremism, it's because they're committed in the abstract to an idea and they don't let it become fully embodied in reality. So the types of commitments I'm talking about in this book, and remember, I'm not talking about just gym memberships or being alone and privately getting into something. It's about community. It's about being out there in the world, in the real world. The commitments not only come with your own mastery of the knowledge, your own reading of the history, they also come with other people. They come with being part of some ecosystem bigger than yourself. That means joining a group that meets up in person, you know, learning about the history, caring about stewarding it for the future, not just using it as like a atomized venue of your own identity, basically. And so what you see with extremists is that a lot of the, you know, domestic terrorists, for example, they're very into an ideology, but they're not part of like a real world club around it. And usually when you get down into the real world, it sometimes has like a moderating effect on it because suddenly you have the leaders in the group that have an interest in preserving the public group. It wants to eventually kind of join up with the larger establishment and be like a legitimated thing. And so often when you fully embody something in the real world, it moderates. And also like you get a lot of, when you have the real world connection, you get a lot of kind of feedback from the routine interactions of the group. But when you're alone and you're just in front of a screen and you're just kind of taking in the YouTube videos, suddenly to like make your mark and to get the the sap of being part of this and to reaffirm your identity in this, you want to do big apocalyptic things like violent things. And so um, part of my argument, you know, this isn't always the case. Sometimes you get real world groups that do bad things too. But a lot of kind of interacting in the real world with a real group has a moderating tendency than all sitting alone on the internet, kind mm -hmm. of watching YouTube videos and getting angry. Right. So as you note, extremism is often mediated by engaging in social groups. And I want to first say that I do not equalize violence stemming from liberation struggles with violence from supremacist ideologies. And as an aside, I think I always have some questions around labels such as extreme because they're relative, right? And they're often weaponized against people fighting for liberation. So for example, I think our current reality is extreme in that it's upheld by the interests of very few and it doesn't align with public interests and well-being. And it's still day-to-day -day being reinforced by a minority that have centralized power. So in this case, radical movements wanting to completely overhaul the current system into one that centers 
and cares for our collective well-being, those are often labeled extreme, even though they better align with public and majority interests. So just an interesting thought. I wonder about this mediating effect that happens when radical social movements get co-opted or watered down in their visions by those in power that want to steer them back to the norm because they don't want any drastic changes to actually happen. Yeah. I would just say I can kind of talk to this with an example. The single greatest, I will be superlative about it, the single greatest American movement in American history and the single most inspiring and the thing that calls the bluff of all cynics of today, armchair cynics of today, is the abolition movement. It began as a radically fringe idea. It was small groups of people that were kind of cited in shorthand in the culture of the day as crazy. You know, they were called future abolitionists or before they were abolitionists. One of them, one of the famous ones called them crazy monomaniacs. And in the span in America of pretty much, you know, there've been abolitionists from the beginning, but, and especially the the people who were enslaved have always been abolitionists, but the real abolitionist movement was basically like 1820 or so to 1865. That's 45 years to go from an unspeakable monomaniacal fringe to the greatest and most inspiring success story of liberation in American history. And so that frankly ended in a lot of, in a lot of, um, violence to end a much more violent regime. And so part of the goal of my uh, book is to say, when you think in the long haul, a radical impossible dream isn't as radical and impossible. A lot of causes that seem crazy are only 40 years, only take about 40 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so the abolitionist movement was 40 years. The The first wave feminist movement was from totally fringe convention idea at Seneca Falls to the to women's suffrage was 70 years. Someone who was at the Seneca Falls convention lived long enough to be able to vote. The gay marriage movement was basically early 80s to 2015. Things that start completely on the fringes of American political thought, almost unspeakable reach the center of thought and win the battle of their times and change the world all in a span that one generation can see through. And there is no reason to believe that the causes of our time from racial justice to, you know, mitigating climate change and a green energy future to deepening democracy and solving kind of economic equality and democratizing our economy. There's no reason to believe that those can happen in our lifetime too. Mm, Really affirming to hear you say that. Before going into our fire round closing questions, what else do you feel called to share um, that I didn't get to ask you about? And what are your calls to action for our listeners? Honor culture is the opposite of the culture of indifference. You know, culture of indifference is you do you, I do me, no one bothers each other. We celebrate each other when we don't bother each other. But this doesn't solve the great problems of our time. What honor culture is, is to have communities that actually have morals again, have communities that have visions of what the good is and have discussions over what's the good and what's bad. And what you do in an honor culture is you celebrate what your community thinks of as good 
and you help nudge people away of what you think of as bad. And what that form that takes concretely is true celebrations and honoring. So what I would recommend to everyone is create awards for people who deserve to be honored and host celebrations to honor them. Throw an annual award ceremony where you give out an award to a long haul hero in your community that's done something good. Because every time that you celebrate the good, you're informed. It's not, it's not for that person. It's for everyone else in the audience to show them we value this as a community. That's why we're honoring this person. You should be more like them. <laughs> and um, that's how you build a moral community. And this sounds like you know, right-wing talk when you hear about moral community, you know, but a moral can be anything. A moral could be about anti-racism or sustainability or democracy or justice, you know. And when you celebrate people, you're telling everyone. We're trying to move collectively as a community in this direction and moral communities get stuff done. And so the the hygiene of that community is the work of um, the small daily building rocks. That's what I mean by hygiene is like the work of celebrating people and of telling stories about what the good is and nudging people away from the bad and, you know, having celebrations and ceremonies and rituals and things like that. What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Well, I would just always recommend Yes Magazine. They are just, they've been churning away for decades on positive solutions journalism of raising up positive alternatives, not just tearing down the bad, but building up the good. Mm, I would definitely echo that. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? I, my biggest one, I love this phrase, life has many chapters which is the idea that there are seasons of life. Sometimes you have bad chapters. That's not your whole life. Don't catastrophize about your life. And also when you have good chapters, don't think that that's going to be forever. You know, There was a great long haul here. I interviewed Monty Anderson who said, when you're up, get humble. And when you're down, get grateful. And that's kind of a corollary to life as many chapters. And what makes you most hopeful for our world at the moment? My belief that culture is not monolithic. That in every dominant culture, there's always heterogeneous countercultures floating sometimes underneath the surface. There's institutional alternatives always being kind of burrowed into dominant institutions. There are always people prefiguring some other way of being. And so the future that we hope for is already alive in the present in tens of thousands of different institutional experiments and counter little countercultures and 
tiny one-off profits thinking up alternative alternative visions of where we can go. So uh, the world is never closed. There is always an alternative and it's likely already alive and it just needs to be grown and spread. Well, Green Dreamer, it is petedavis.org if you would like to stay updated on Pete's work and to find his book, Dedicated. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Pete D. Davis and also on Instagram with the same username. Pete, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Well, I would just say thank you to you all for listening. Uh, Express some gratitude to a long-haul hero in your life. If you're on the verge of diving into something, take this as your moment to get, let me give you a nudge to do it. And if you're already on uh, one of these journeys, I'll just say keep up the good fight. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To support the show starting from just $2 or to make a larger tax-deductible donation, you can head to patreon.com slash greendreamer. Without a media network or marketing agency behind us, we also rely entirely on word of mouth so that our extensive archive of conversations can reach and inspire more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with friends or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is Around the World by Wig Wem, offered to us by Indigenous Cloud. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care and I'll catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>